welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Connor Gledhill. Connor is a PhD candidate exploring causal inference and is someone who speaks fluently about complex topics. Must be the smooth Irish accent. Causal inference is basically the pursuit of estimating how and why things happen. How do we determine causation? Strictly through the randomized controlled trial, or can we use observational evidence too? Causation is famously a dirty word in modern science, unless it is explicitly explored via the randomized controlled trial. However, Connor thinks this thought process is elitist and that other research methods can be used too, with some caveats, of course. Connor and I have many shared interests, including weird fascinations with quantum physics, complexity, and consciousness science. So this was a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you do too. This show is sponsored by the Complete Shoulder Online Course, brought to you by yours truly. The Complete Shoulder Online Course will help you confidently treat people with shoulder pain while still acknowledging the complexity and uncertainty that is inherent to musculoskeletal healthcare. In over 16 hours of training delivered in an engaging, self-paced online format, you'll learn everything you need to know to feel more at ease treating people with shoulder pain. Head to www.shoulderphysio.com for more information. One more announcement. New podcast episodes will now be released monthly instead of weekly. Whilst I thoroughly enjoy the podcast and talking to and conversing with guests on the show, the workload of releasing a weekly show is simply too much given my co-commitments to research and clinical practice, not to mention the impact on family time and golf, which is in desperate need of attention. This will in no way diminish my passion for bringing you the most meaningful conversations in the musculoskeletal sphere. As always, Thanks for your continued support. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Connor Gledhill. Okay, Connor Gledhill, how are you? Thank you for coming on and having a conversation with me. Oh, thank you so much, Jared, mate, for having me along. I'm super excited. Yeah, it should be good. Yeah, we've 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 been talking uh, on and off in the in the social media world for a, for a couple of years, probably, and I really love some of your work uh, that you've put out into the Instagram uh, universe or Twitter universe or the internet in general. So I've admired some of your work and I've been, we've been trying to catch up for a while now. So I'm glad we've finally made it happen. So if you could sort of just give people a bit of a brief introduction into you and your history, who are you? What do you do? What does a typical week look like for Connor? Yeah, great. So I think with the COVID, the year of COVID, we haven't actually been able to catch up in person. There was a couple mm. of conferences I think we were we were going to, Jared, wasn't it? So who is Connor? I am a researcher and strength coach and a physiotherapist. And I think in that order at the moment is probably appropriate. Uh, where I've where I've gone and how I've how I've gotten here is 
like all, well, like most physiotherapists, uh, I started off uh, getting a lot of injuries as a as a kid growing up playing playing rugby union. So I'm Irish, and there is no other. Well, there are other codes in Ireland. There's there's football, the round ball, but we played uh, a lot of rugby union. So got a lot of injuries and. I've got a very medical family, so I thought physiotherapy is a very good fit. I was around a lot as a kid as well. And so, you know, it's maybe strength of physiotherapy that they can have a real shaping um, role in, in kids' lives. So that story is pretty common. After I did uni in Australia, so I, so I moved out here for uni, and um, I worked publicly, and then I ran my own business, and then I ran a, a program for the New South Wales Police Force and I can say I can think I could say the name it's a large um, a large law enforcement agency where we had uh, a really awesome team of strength coaches and psychologists and dietitians and it was a high performance unit for for the you know frontline officers so it was, that was that was really cool and after that then finished I ended up chasing my interests and I've always had roles in research throughout my clinical career and so I delved into research a little bit more full-time I was a researcher clinician for a while I ran my own clinic and I've recently made the people might say silly decision to pursue research career full-time and so that's what I've done this year and I'm eight months into full-time PhD scholarship with a few amazing researchers. So Dr. Hope and Lee, who's in Oxford, Chris Williams, who's here with me in Newcastle, and Steve Camper in Sydney. So a really fantastic team, and, and, and I'm very lucky to be where I'm at. At the moment, I do a little bit of coaching, a little bit of strength coaching on maybe like a half a day here and there, but predominantly researcher, strength coach at the moment. That's great. That's that's a quite a cool evolution there, Connor. Not not a lot of cause and effect actually in that evolution. You, it would be hard to predict where you'd end up in a full time research role after running a high performance unit in the police force, mate. What's going on? Yeah, that's a good good point. Yeah, we could start to get into a discussion around prediction and causation there, Jared. That might be good. <laughs> um, interesting. You mentioned Steve Steve Camper. I'm talking to him next month, actually. Uh, in a similar format to this so this will be this is going to it's going to be a great hopefully um build up to that he's he's just published some fantastic sort of viewpoint editorial type articles in the JOSBT on some basic statistic which statistics which all physiotherapists hate and can't stand but he really makes it quite I guess accessible which is uh which is a credit to him so do you uh, are you is he one of your supervisors Yes. So Steve's evidence and practice series, I think, is is the go-to, maybe like entry-level resource for clinicians who really want to know a bit more about research. And yeah, bang on, absolutely. He can make really complex topics very clear and simple. And he's Steve and I and, and the supervisory group, and I think that's what's led me into this. I've just finished discussing this with them, is that we all think about the same ideas and and that's what I get from research that is a little bit different. It's the cerebral challenge of people that think quite similarly uh, around, you know, the same broad ideas and, and you all challenge each other to, I guess, improve and get better at thinking about those ideas. So embedding what's good about research culture into practice, I think is the ultimate 
aim and goal. And one of the, a large part of my PhD is, is around that. So, you know, it's exciting. Okay, before we get into the, to the dense, intellectual, cerebral topics, Connor, what book are you reading right now or what TV series are you watching now? It can be the trashiest TV show of all time, I don't mind, or it could be a, a dense book. So what are you, what are you going to go for? <laughs> Probably I'm going to go exactly that. So I'll start with a trashy TV show, and I'm, yeah. I'm a sucker for food shows. Yeah. Now. Like I've almost watched exclusively food shows on, you know, whatever it is. Somebody Feed Phil is my, is my yeah, new favourite. Yeah. It's really corny. but It's so in, corny. It's so corny, but but in a nice way, and it's real. So I'll have yeah. to say, it, you know, it's real food porn. So you know, you have yeah. some fantastic dishes going on. So uh, yeah. that's that's the trashy show. The book is dense, and I yeah. just finished it. And actually, we were talking about complexity before, Jared. So this is called complexity: the science uh, on the edge of chaos and order. The science on the edge of chaos and order. Um, it's by Mitchell Wal- Waldorf. Really good. Connor, I'm listening to that right now. That's the <laughs> book I'm listening to right now. You always tend to be listening to the similar kind of books, yeah, and reading. So you finished it, okay? So um, it's a I love. I'm loving it so far. It's fantastic. So don't give too much away. Can you can you give a brief overview for the sort of um, to the lay listener of what it is? Yeah, great. So it centres around the establishment of the Santa Fe Research Group, which is which I was actually referred this book by a colleague because we're doing the same kind of thing. And this is part of my PhD is establish a, a network of physiotherapists that come from different areas and, and we're, we're, we're aiming to really generate clinically relevant research. So that's, that's one part of it is um, the Santa Fe Institute. But largely it's talking about the science of complexity and how it relates to different fields, but how then those fields are all interlinked. So economics, um, you know, it used to be this really simple, clear, like I say, Newtonian. So we used to view the world in this really crystal clear way that, you know, cause and effect was very clear, you know, so this happened and that happened and and there was very, um, there was no binds of uncertainty around things. So that was kind of this, the way that, economics was viewed physics was viewed and physics has just moved on a a lot quicker than other fields so economics is kind of still stuck in this um they call it neoclassical way of of viewing the the world the economic world um and so it's then watching these fields unfold and um evolve and so you know we now a little bit more recently we view economics and the economic systems as these complex systems that emerge and what i guess that means is there are various factors that contribute to you know a novel exposure a, no, a novel um outcome that you probably couldn't accurately predict from from previous i guess cause and effect relationships and so what what that is is this you know tension between um, chaos so the natural world is very chaotic we know that from quantum physics uh, and the tension between the natural predilection for systems to want to self-order um, it's getting really deep so basically the, that that's what the book is around and they go through economics and they go around um, kind of neuro a bit of neurobiology don't they jared yep 
so that yeah, it's fantastic. It's a good book. I recommend it. For pain, yeah. it has big links to our field. That's exactly right. And I think the applications, not just to pain, but humans and, and human systems and, and behaviors are uh, everywhere to be found. And I've, I went down the rabbit hole of quantum physics a couple of years ago, and I'm still down it. And just, and you mentioned, you mentioned a Newtonian view of the world, it obviously shatters that entirely. And this is why causal inference, which is what we're going to talk about and cause and effect. I've got some really interesting questions for you um, on whether we can ever actually have a strong causal, a causal reason for something occurring, or is it just an estimate based on quantum, quantum mechanics? Is it just a statistical estimation that we make based on a number of different variable, variables and what have you? So the, what you're saying really rings home to me. And I think if we look at humans as a complex biological system um, that is always teetering on the edge of chaos, and the reason why we come back to this Newtonian view of the world, which, I, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, is, that, is because it's coherent. It makes sense, right? We, we drop a ball and it drops to the ground pretty consistently every single time. And we can often, and we love to, we love to have causes and reasons for things because without that the world is entirely uncertain and a very hard place to navigate and sort of live in so so that sets us up beautifully and that that wasn't planned Connor we haven't even we didn't even uh, talk about that pre uh pre being on air so we're reading the same book it has a lot of applications to physiotherapy to pain but it also has a lot of applications to your PhD which is concerning causal inference or the science of causal inference so do you mind giving me primarily a bit of an outline of what causal inference is just in a in a in a minute or two if you can and then also to the wider audience as well and try and make it as digestible as you as you can yeah great so causal inference you know it it sounds like a it sounds big and it sounds complex but i think what the first really simple way of I guess outlining this and as a you know really important preface is it's a way of thinking that you you know I guess need to adopt to understand I, I think you hit the nail on the head Jared to understand the world in a little bit more appropriate detail and in you know a little bit more of an accurate way of of understanding how research unfolds, um, but then also understanding how, how events unfold. So a way of thinking. And I think there's a, a few important reasons why it is important. And, and just as a bit of background, I think we all are really good at, at cause and effect as human beings. If we weren't, we wouldn't live very far. So we intuitively know what and are trying to find links between cause and effect uh, throughout our whole lives. And you just mentioned the ball dropping scenario. So if we didn't have this way of thinking as human beings, um, we wouldn't we wouldn't get very far. So someone who doesn't know that, you know, a weight that when it is dropped, it falls. Um, you know, a, a baby who doesn't know that might have a weight, you know, drop on their hand and other sorts of horrible things happen to them. They, they may not get very far because they may not react and um and and behave appropriately to those cause and effects the problem comes when and i think this is getting into a second reason why causal inference is important is because causal inference 
is is really important as a way of thinking to to think through what's called spurious association. So um, we were were just talking, Jared, about the example of um, ice creams and shark attacks. So, you know, if you plot ice creams and shark attacks on a graph, um, they rise in the same way and they fall in the same way. And you can, without thinking, you may lead to a conclusion that ice creams, increasing consumption of ice creams may cause increasing shark attacks. But when you think about this in a clearer way, that's obviously that's obviously not the case. So that's spurious and that's spurious association. And I think this is the trick with causal inference is making um, the important, I guess, thinking that goes into cause and effect very explicit um, and then clarifying your thinking. So to avoid these spurious associations. I think the other reason why causal inference is really important is because, again, we do it so much as human beings that a lot of the reporting on research and science and, and you know, we, we probably just gave a little bit of an example again off air, Jared, about where causal inference kind of came from as, as a science. And it, it's in reaction to this really simple way of viewing research and and you know, the science that's out there, um, that we really have a a really cut and dry way. And I think it's through our training as clinicians in evidence-based practice of saying that you can have cause or you can't have cause. And again, this is really Newtonian, right? It's, it's, that's outdated. That's, that's pretty outdated, but importantly, people that don't have, you know, even people with the training, so researchers and clinicians with evidence-based practice training, we can really leap to strong conclusions about cause or the lack of cause in things we read. And, and then this, this might filter out into, the, you know, our, our patients. Um, and this is a big issue in the media. You know, some media might report on certain studies that either might conflate or, or you know, make their causal claims a little bit stronger than they could be or even the other way where you know so the media may um, not report on cause where there may be some kind of stronger causal inference um, possible so where there isn't the training and even where there is the training um, of evidence-based practice and science um, we have this really newtonian view of of cause and effect and and Causal inference is about understanding that there's a science in, in cause and effects um, and that, you know, this view can be a lot more complex and, and appropriate to the natural world than is currently happening in science and, and you know, the evidence base and then clinical life. So that's it. In the, There wasn't a minute, but I hope probably that, that gives a bit of an outline. Yeah, that's great. So, so causal inference could be perhaps... The study of cause and effect and then the reason why causal inference is perhaps important is it is it maybe negates or minimizes these spurious associations which can uh, sort of crop up without rigid or thorough uh, scientific examination is that roughly accurate yeah absolutely so i think then then going to the other side of this is that understanding that cause and effect is is not just talking about spurious association because again I think what that might lead to is clinicians thinking that you can only have cause and effect in certain scenarios um, which is a 
probably a hangover of this decree in the 80s by statisticians saying that, you know, randomization is the only way to get at cause and, and, and a causal relationship. So that's probably going the other way. And it's trying to understand that there is a, another important way of thinking and, and a gray area um, between cause and effect with even the our evidence-based practice top of the pyramid type um, of studies. Yeah. So, okay, let's get into that. So if we're trying to determine causation, let's say we're going to talk about the shoulder. Let's say we're trying to determine whether non-surgical treatment for rotator cuff related shoulder pain is uh, superior to surgical treatment of rotator cuff related shoulder pain. And let's just say it's a tendon repair. So we've got two groups, physiotherapy or non-surgical and then surgical. And so if we're trying to determine which is more effective, then we would probably use a randomized control trial to do that, right? And so the outcome of that, irrespective of sort of how we do the treatment or how long we give it, let's say it's it's perhaps a three-month intervention of physiotherapy and it's a surgery and they're followed up for, for one year. So could we interpret if everything is done well within that randomized control trial that that will that experiment will spit out what is more effective uh, an intervention which could give rise to what causes um, the better uh, or the the better effects out of which intervention? So I guess what I'm trying to say in a bit of a discombobulated way is a randomized control trial still the gold standard or is it the only way of determining proper cause and effect in physiotherapy land? Yeah, this is so brilliant and absolutely the most, I think one of the most important questions and for, for current clinical environment. And I, and I think, so the simple answer is um, randomized control trials are still, you know, the, the most well controlled and, and well established way to create more confidence in your cause and effect relationship. So, you know, the causal exposure there is the exposure to whatever you're trying to test. So in your example, it's probably, you know, so whatever intervention you're, you're interested in, in testing against, against a control group, right? So the, your RCT, absolutely still the, the best way to do that with more confidence and with more certainty and that's all we're doing with health research is we're trying to create more certainty more confidence around the estimate that we're getting from some exposure to some intervention the important point to this is that it isn't the only way to do it so it is it it is the best way that we have currently, but it is not the only way. So there are other ways to establish a cause and effect relationship. So again, what you're just trying to find out is whether your exposure, so the intervention, has some kind of effect. And the way that there there are many other ways to do that. So you know you you can cohort study is a is another nice accessible example. And in, in a cohort study, you're following a group of people for a time period. And so that has the benefit of being prospective, you know, so, so you are able to measure them before and, and then after. Um, and obviously, then what you're wanting to do is to try to examine this 
group that you have you've determined they have the appropriate exposure so the intervention that you're you're interested in finding or, or understanding and estimating the effect of that exposure and what you need to do is create an alternate scenario where they don't have that exposure and so maybe you pick a control group you select a control group that don't have that exposure and this is you know a controlled cohort study so this is a study then where you haven't randomized people you can still determine to some level of confidence, to some level of certainty, what the effect has been of that exposure, your intervention, as long as you have then done appropriate levels of um, ensuring your, your, your control group is at least adequately matched to group that you're trying to understand what the intervention is, so your exposure group. Um, and, you know, there are important ways to then list how you're asking that question. And also, importantly, there, 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 are, there are ways to determine how you're measuring, statistically measuring the effect that you're, you're measuring. So statistically analyze the effect that you're measuring at the end of all of this exposure. So short answer is uh, it is still the best way. Long answer is it's not the only way to determine cause and effect. But again, this comes into understanding more about causal inference and, and the science there and how we all do it and, and how we do it as researchers, how we do it as clinicians. Wonderful. That's, so you mentioned a cohort-controlled trial um, or, yeah, I guess we'll call it a trial. So, that still, so that still comes under the banner of an observational study right or or because can you is are you doing an intervention and therefore it sort of comes under more in interventional type study because sort of classically it's divided into interventional and then observational and the interventional ones you can you do as an rct or what have you and that's establishing causation and then observational is you just observe a cohort of people you don't really intervene but you just you i guess you look for associations and you could theorize or or perhaps hypothesize if there are causative events happening. Is that, is that a fair distinction? And within observational, within classic observational type research, apart from what you may have just mentioned um, in terms of the cohort controlled type study, are there any other observational type ways of establishing causation or is that purely correlational or associational? This is such a good question. So I'm going to, just put a caveat out there, Jared, that this is actually some work that is currently within my PhD. So I, I can't give too, I guess I can't give too much away, but I can explain it because we're not at the point yet where we, we have results or, or anything sure. like this. It's, um, it's, it's going to be great, I guess, to, to, to follow on with this. But um, so to answer your question, observational research and Interventional research, so I might call that experimental um, research. So that's maybe some semantics. Observational research and causal inference, that is actually really common in different fields. It's just, again, with our evidence-based practice and our clinical teaching, it, we, we kind of put observational research into a completely uh, non-causal realm. You can definitely still determine uh, to some level of confidence and again what we're talking about there is the confidence level in your cause and effect relationships it's just stronger with your experimental 
maybe again the top of the pyramid there is your randomized control trial so that's where you can be stronger in your inference of cause and effect but observational research is still possible and it's done very commonly in epidemiology so you know large public health issues that you're not able to you know ethically randomize but amongst the population you'll still importantly be asking and looking at, at a causal question and a causal issue so for example if you want to understand the exposure to lead in water and what that does and we know you know years and years um you know hundreds for hundreds of years it's not good right so but you can't randomize people to have lead in their water and, and then lead not in some people's water um ethically you just can't do it but this is you know that was epidemiology back in the 1800s they were figuring this stuff out and that was through observing and um the, that is an observational research study to observe people over time and figure out what the cause of some kind of exposure is and again we in, in clinical world we we think less so much in terms of these big level exposures we think about doing things to people but you know, interventions so our interventions are still exposures if that makes sense so um going back to your question Observational research, there's plenty of ways to get at a causal relationship um, through a cohort study. We listed that. But even your cross-sectional studies, uh, you can still try to get at some kind of causal uh, relationship and cause and effect um, through simply just being clear in your, your questions, what you're trying to ask, uh, and then how you do that. So how you statistically kind of work with your data um, to get at that question. So that's probably number one. And then going to your experimental, your interventional research, I think we again have this really um, uh, like very, not, not, it's quite parochial actually the way we view this, but it's, it's really elitist that you can only do an RCT uh, to, to determine cause and effect. But what randomizing is, is it's just a research method it's a tool to put into your study to simply try to make, again, your causal understanding of the phenomenon, phenomena that you're looking at, stronger. So, you know, uh, if you view randomization that way, you can set up trials, experimental trials in all kinds of ways that are mimicking a randomized control trial. You just then don't randomize people to one thing or the other. You know, the, the cohort study without the randomizing is simply, a, you know, a prospective cohort with, a, you know, prospective control cohort. Then you put a randomizer in there then you've just simply, you know, jumbled up the exposure and made your causal inference a little bit stronger. Beautiful. So, so if we look at it like a confidence spectrum or confidence continuum, then you have your RCT as the we're, we're most confident of in terms of establishing cause and effect association. And perhaps that gets a little weaker as we go along into the observational type studies. But we can certainly speculate with observational research as to what if there may be some causal associations, if indeed the research question is set up well and good statistics are done. Yeah, I completely, I love that way of laying it out. That's great. You should, <laughs> you should that, Jared. That's put it, great. Put it in your paper. Oh, no, it's all right. Just 
Well, so we do talk, and, you know, in the causal inference world, that's probably a good point. We talk about strong causal inference and weak Mm. causal inference. And so, you know, if you start to, that's why I explain causal inference as a way of thinking, because if you start to talk about cause and effect in that way, it takes away the burden of having to, you know, um, deal with spurious associations or associations as something that, you know, it's, it's just so elitist, this way of thinking about research methods and design and cause and effect that we currently have. So if you can start to use different language, it really helps, you know, so you can be, uh, you can have an inference of cause and effect that's very strong in an RCT, an inference of causal effect that's very weak in a cross-sectional study. So mm. yeah. That's interesting. So, so maybe if you get a result coming up in, in, a, in a basic observational type paper, and it may lead to what looks like an association or a, or a correlation, and you hypothesize as to whether it's causative. Can that is that a good way of then leading into an RCT then to perhaps test that hypothesis in a stronger way? Does that does that happen often at all? I really like this question, and again, this is you know part of my PhD is dealing with this, so I can't give too many specifics. But I do think this is. It's a common sense way to progress, right? That you're maybe trying to really just descriptively understand something first. And so again, if we if you're talking to Steve next next time, so his evidence and practice series deals with the kind of three general type of types of questions that you you're wanting to know in science and in understanding the world, you know, you have a descriptive question is maybe the the first broad level of trying to understand something and this is largely what we're doing with cross-sectional studies and observational studies but I think the key is then not to be too black and white with things and and say that well a descriptive an observational study that's a cross-sectional study can never understand cause and effect because if it's set up well enough it actually may be for certain issues, it may be the only way to understand cause and effect. And we have this idea that we can't use the word cause with certain questions. And that's what Miguel Hernan, uh, who's the, he's the real proponent of causal inference. And uh, I would recommend your readers follow his work and read uh, all of his papers. But I guess the easiest, most accessible is the C word paper. And that was in 2018. So, so, read, so listeners, go and read that. And so the C word is a nice euphemism there and a nice title because we tend to think about cause as a really dirty word in certain you know, um, research methods and, and in certain areas. But to go back to your question, it's a sensible way to progress, to describe something first. And then once you have describe something, making sure you don't go too far and think too far into your data, because I think that's an issue that you might have literally just described something. So you have a picture of the world so that you don't start drawing links where there are none. So you don't start talking about cause and effect where you're not sure where that causal relationship has come from, because then the next step is to probably design a causal study and to start thinking is in a causal way and, and ask a causal question but i think doing something as a really broad level to describe it, it is an important way to maybe understand the world and, and it is currently done like we do see that 
I think that's what I'm talking about as the issue being if you read too much into that as researchers and the study, you know, the author team, if you're, you're talking about a strong causal link where you, you haven't designed the study or the, you know, you haven't asked the causal question, you're just trying to describe it. Does that make sense? Is that? Yeah. I love, I love, um, Sometimes you're just not able to do a experimental study on things. As you just mentioned a moment ago, there may be some ethical issues or in fact, it's just too hard to do. And so that's, that's okay. So then you should just focus on getting the best kind of observational data as you can. And it's, it's, it's fascinating that C, because you sent me that C word paper, which is a great uh, title by, by Hernan in 2018. And it, it just it made me think that so true. Whenever I see um, observational or cross-sectional paper come out, the first thing they say is careful correlation doesn't equal causation. So it's like everybody's afraid of, of saying the word causation in this day and age out of fear of being shot down on social media or by colleagues or, or whatever. So it, I, I see by, by your line of inquiry that you're kind of not a fan of that. And you think that in fact, this cross-sectional uh, well, we should be more confident in in speculating to the relation cause and effect relationships within cross-sectional uh, research if indeed it's done well would that be a fair synopsis absolutely fair well said Jared I think uh, I, I think the issue here is that th- then it round it so this, this idea of really being overly cautious with with the word cause and and what you think might be causing something is it renders so much of the world unaccessible to scientific inquiry. Whereas if we are just all a little bit happier to be clearer in what question we're asking and how we're doing it and being more open with that, then what we are left with is, is a world where we can start to understand things better. Whereas, you know, as you say, now we currently we're in a situation where no one can talk about what they speculate and this so i think the idea with causal inference is state your assumptions and you state what you think the relationship is that you're dealing with and that's a large part of it and much of that the other relationships that go into say the primary exposure that we're looking at we have a good idea about how those relationships work and that's based off data we, we just want to know about the, the one relationship in the middle that we're, in, that we're most interested in but importantly, when that's not the case, when there isn't data, we're still left to just simply make an educated guess on this stuff. And that happens in all other areas of the world that, you know, we make educated guesses on things that are you know, based in logic and common sense. But we seem to be in this weird space in, in health and you know, science more broadly that we, we can't say that because we, we can't use the word cause. So yeah, absolutely. Short answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, we seem to be in this, especially in healthcare, we're in a funny place because so physiotherapy has been trending towards evidence-based medicine for maybe a few decades now, which is a, which is a good thing. I think it's accelerated our profession um, in a sort of untold manner. It's been fantastic. But but it gets to a point where like there has to be some logic and there has to be some intuition and there has to be some nuance to it because we it's very hard to get empirical evidence on human experience 
in fact, those two are almost polar opposites in how you set them out. Empiricism is third-person science, which is you know, thanks to Galileo for that 500 years ago. And then um, first-person experience is phenomenology, right? So that's like subjective. The person, you can't get access to it directly. It's, it's, we have to rely on, on subjective information. So trying to, trying to marry empiricism and phenomenology together, we're, we're in that that tension right now we're in that struggle we're in that seesaw and i'm such an advocate of empiricism and science but recently i'm starting to see the shortcomings of it and i'm sort of starting to to drift on the other side a little bit but then i see gurus and quacks on that side and i I drift back to the well we need a randomized control trial so i totally understand this push pull and i don't think there's an easy answer because and this may sort of come back to our complexity conversation that we we opened with it's do you have anything to add to that uh is is there a way to marry these two together so so we can understand both sides of the divide as it were equally and not be drawn to this these binary kind of these these sensationalist assumptions where it has to be one or the other have you thought about this Connor yeah all, all the time i think it's such a <laughs> it's such a good conversation I think for your listeners, it's probably going to end up sounding, you know, really philosophical because I, I agree, you know, it's, it's so tough and this is a realm where there, you know, there isn't a lot of data, so we can't talk about it with That's all right. too much confidence, but 100%. So I think, and, and I think this is the risk, is that we get stuck into separating the two. And particularly when we're talking about pain, and I mean, I'm not going to name names, and I think most of your listeners would be aware of uh, pain as a sensation perception de- debate. It's called a debate that it was was quite, you know, it was quite prominent, um, at least in certain circles. I think what the issue there is that you are definitely trying to actively separate phenomenology and the human experience and you know and scientific inquiry this may be rose tinted for me because i am you know i'm romantically involved with science i do really enjoy it and i think it's um but but i do there are limitations to science absolutely and but a large part of that is that the way we've practiced science in the past has been you know, certain way. And, um, and and then we're talking about causal inference in this call. And, you know, that's, that's come about by certain failures in, in science and scientific inquiry. What I think, you know, when we're talking about science, it's, it's literally just a way to understand the world. And I, I think, you know, there are aspects of science that you, you're able to measure things that aren't out of the realm of phenomenology. It's just we don't have those methods yet so i think where i'm getting you think we will yeah i i think where where i'm getting to is that i think you know consciousness (laughs) we're going there is the ultimate you know expression of something that's out of the realm of scientific inquiry i i don't think we're going to be having this conversation i don't think we're going to be thinking in that way in 500 years you know in 200 years you know science has moved on so much in 200 years already that, you know, you you think about what we're going to be, what we will understand in 200 more years. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think the risk is definitely in pain and and in the pain world is that we 
we do continue to separate the two. I, I think underlying all of that, I, I think as one moves closer to the other, we're going to have, you know, more certainty and, and more accurate ways of at least measuring some aspects of phenomenology in the short term. And, you know, in the very long term, in 200 years, I'm not sure where we'll be, but I don't think we're having this conversation. Fascinating. So that's a strong well, line, isn't it? It's a yeah. strong line. I like your confidence. <laughs> um, there's confidence there. Mm. So, I mean, let's tempt, you know, let's temper that statement in that I'm not sure that's my opinion, uh, that I don't, I think the two aren't mutually exclusive. I think that being able to measure and understand things on a, on an objective scale is, you know, there's nothing about consciousness that will preclude that, in my opinion, in time. So, so David Chalmers, who's a Australian, have you heard of David Chalmers? Yeah. So the, the fabulous consciousness researcher, I think he's from Adelaide, he's, he's now over in New York and he's a genius. And he, he, he's, he invented the term emergence really, or kind of as it relates to consciousness anyway. And he, so he thinks strong, there's only one strongly emergent phenomena in the world and that is consciousness and then everything else like pain for example is weakly emergent so strong emergence is that there is no way of explaining consciousness by looking at the brain or by looking at a neuron or by looking at any structure of our nervous system this it's simply you look at it and you don't think that consciousness would emerge from that and that's that's strong emergence and weak emergence is a, is a little bit different um we can talk about that in a moment and so on that on that definition of strong emergence kind of means that we need new physical laws and this is probably where you're getting at to actually account for consciousness so we need another quantum revolution or another einstein to come up and or perhaps that's quantum gravity which they're working on but we need more physical laws to actually account for consciousness and so perhaps that's where you're going maybe in 200 years it was like look einstein only bloody had the general theory of relativity in 1905 so that's just over 100 years ago so as i'm talking i think what you're saying is maybe not as absurd as i thought it was a moment ago but it's very interesting to, to think about in that we're going to need new ways of understanding the world from a fundamental, from a granular level. Like we're, we're talking about how we perceive the laws of nature as they are now. So it's very, very interesting to think about. So you still want to, you want to stick to that, Connor? I'm, I'm sticking to it. And I think if I had my life again, you know, life is long. So I would have loved to be a physicist. And I think, purely for that reason is that <laughs> through through physics we've been able to really uh, under understand the fundamental makeup of our existence our consciousness um and yes you know i think um i, I do think quantum physics is a realm where it will prove to be very important for consciousness and i think you know that's why there are a lot of quantum theoreticists that do a lot of consciousness research so yeah uh, sticking to it <laughs> good good i like i like i like a man with convictions connor it's great great to hear so all right we're going to have one final question and it's going to be who knows where this is going to go so if you're happy to accept that human beings and the world in fact is more quantum mechanical than newtonian would you be happy with that assumption yes or assertion i should say 
I'm confident with that, yes. I have high levels of confidence. Then as it is right now, how how can we ever understand pain, which is a weekly emergent phenomena, from our research or scientific methods at the moment, given that the very definition of, of quantum is... It's, it's almost entirely uncertain. We, that's why we use wave functions. We can, we can estimate where a particle is going to be, but we can never know for certain where it is. So if we extrapolate that to causation, can we, ever, can we ever say with certainty that something, some variable, some factor causes an event, even in simply in, in shoulder research, strengthening versus a control group? Strengthening is shown to be superior, but is it because the person got stronger or did strengthening, or is it because of a thousand other intrinsic or inherent variables or sociocultural variables are at play? So, just what are your thoughts? There's no real question there. What do you think about that? And I know this is at the heart of your very existence, so I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jared, I love this question. Um, uh, <laughs> you went deep. So yes, you're right. I I think about this a lot, um, and and trying to explain this to people is you did a really good job there, mate. I'm, I'm very impressed with that. So trying to explain this to people is really tough. So maybe I'll I'll try to. I think what you're saying is that because because cause and effect, we we're we're wanting to understand that a lot of the time, and and obviously with pain, we we try to reduce things into cause and effect a lot. But is it, is it possible because of essentially the quantum nature of the world? Again, I think, I think when we're talking about maybe aspects of existence like pain, that you, you know, you, you, you're talking about a weekly emergent phenomenon, that we will get more confident with how these things work. Um, but I think that comes into then because I... So I'll go back. I, I do think about when what breaks down all of these systems is when we go to the future. Uh, you we're not talking about time travel there. What we're talking about is trying to predict some kind of effect with, with a level of certainty. When you have complex systems that have myriad of um, factors all interacting at multiple different ways together, you know, d- does this make our prediction useless prediction is really tough at the best of times and we're terrible at prediction as scientists as researchers like really really kind of bad um and so i think our prediction is pretty terrible at the moment but that doesn't mean that it it's not going to be terrible in many years to come Uh, so i think one thing i might make clear with your listeners as well is that when we're talking about prediction it doesn't mean that you can interact on many things that predict an outcome of pain so you know you can't interact on someone's age or previous pain that has you know a very strong predictive um, relationship with their future pain you can't interact on that so we need to be clear when we're reading literature and steve will expand on this more is you know we're talking about prediction that's not a causal issue We're, we're trying to simply just predict something but what you're talking about is um so I think we need to get that clear first is what do we actually want to intervene on? And that makes your factors less, automatically less. So modifiable factors. Perfect, perfect. Modifiable factors. We're intervening on those. I think our prediction for those will get better, but I don't think we'll ever know for certain. That's 
that's the nature of the world. We'll just get more confident as we understand things better. That's my answer on that. It's such a good question. I think about I like it so it. much. Yeah. It's good. It is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to answer at this point in time in 2020. Maybe if we can uh, upload our consciousness to Elon Musk's uh, neural link, then we might be able to have this discussion in 200 years. But um, it just comes, it makes me think, in physiotherapy, and this is a paper that I've just published or it's just been accepted, it'll come out soon, is we just, we just lurch or reel from one reductionist miracle treatment to another. So we've gone from manual therapy, we've gone to corrective exercise, we've, now we're in strengthening. We've been, we've been through stretching and we've been through all of this, right? And we're just, we haven't learned our lesson. We keep reducing these complex emergent phenomena such as pain or, or even injury. I think injury is probably emergent as well. That, that we're just trying to say it's because he was weak. His external rotation strength was 80% of the other side or, or she or it or whatever. And it's just, we haven't learned our lesson. And then we're obsessed with strength and conditioning for a decade, yeah. which has been great because I think a really strong understanding of strength is vital, but to then extrapolate that to being the cause of everybody's um, pain and therefore the fix of everybody's pain, musculoskeletal pain, I think it's short-sighted. And, and I th- it's just we've got to understand this, this, this complexity of, of, of pain and we, we have to be at peace with it. And at the moment, we don't have solid prediction rules of what causes pain in the first place and, in, in, in fact, what's going to fix it in the future or, or manage it in the future. It's so individual. It's so variable. It's different in from one continent to the next and probably one age group to the next and one occupation to the next or socio-demographics. There's so many dimensions to it. And this is why I love the term, why pain is its multi-dimensional experience is that I don't think we can articulate one factor like at scale that's causing this, this pain epidemic that, that we supposedly have. And so that's kind of what, I, what I'm thinking and why... I, I sort of love this quantum mechanical view of the world because I think it does have, a, have, have applications to physio. And it doesn't mean, and I, I kind of like what you're saying in that we may get there in the future. I hadn't really thought about that given how far we've come. In, you know, humans have been around for what, may, Homo sapiens, maybe a couple of million years or a million years. The universe has been around for 14 billion. Look how far we've come in 100. So I totally accept that line of thought do you have any closing thoughts or musings or ramblings you'd like to get off your chest Connor before you go go and think about this over lunch <laughs> only homo sapiens I think 60,000 years 60,000 it's a blink in the a blink of an eye so absolutely and I think what you actually just did there Jared is to bring it full circle is to explain the importance of causal inference so because causal inference is not talking about does X cause Y? It's talking about, okay, so what's the relationship of all of these factors together that then results in our outcome Y or the shorthand generally is A. So, you know, it's having a more complex view of these things. And I think the typical response is then, you know, so as you, you've got so much of this knowledge, whereas I don't think a lot of physiotherapists would have this, is this quantum appreciation of the world is then to go, well, we can't, we can't understand or predict anything, so why bother? Uh, that's not the point. It's about just getting a more complex view of what you're trying to predict 
Yeah, and I think that's causal inference. Awesome. That's actually a beautiful finish. That's poetic. And I think we've done well to wrestle with some pretty complex topics, let's be honest. And it, it, the topics are probably above our pay grade. We're not... Yeah. Um, we're, we're in no way uh, aiming to be philosophers or physicists. We're just physios with an interest in this stuff. We're both doing a PhD, so we've got interest in research. I hate research, mate. I'll, I'll say it out loud right now, um, but I'm forcing myself to, to get into it. But it's anyway. We're we're just we're two blokes trying to have a have a chat and try and figure some stuff out. It may may be wrong, but I think it's interesting to think about some of the like epistemological um, kind of things in the world. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a great way to say it. Like we are just a couple of physios. Uh, we we do we're not experts in this. So seek are the experts. Eh? That's what we yeah. all do all the time, right? Yeah, read some read some books. There's so many good books out there. The the book that we both alluded to was called Complexity by Michael or Mitchell Waldrop or, or something like that. I'll link to it anyway. And there's a bunch of go YouTube David Chalmers if you're interested in consciousness. He is a genius of a man, so I highly recommend you listen to him. He's got a paper on emergence as well, so listen to that. Anyway, Connor, thanks so much for for joining me and having a, a conversation. Really nice to meet you and talk to you, and all the the best of luck with your PhD. Likewise. Thank you, mate. Thanks so much for having me on. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Connor Gledhill. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.